Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In a rambling announcement and press conference this morning, President Trump declared a national emergency. We're declaring it for virtual invasion purposes, drugs, traffickers, and gangs. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Sumer released a joint statement on the crisis, and they said uh, there's no crisis, the crisis does not exist, and they called it an unlawful declaration. With me to talk about the national emergency and President Trump is Tom Ginsburg, professor of political science and uh, international law at the University of Chicago. He's author of the book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Hi, Jerome. And Nancy McLean is with us also. She's author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for Democracy. And she is a professor of history and public policy at Duke University. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Glad to be with you again, Jerome. Um, Nancy, I wonder how do you take this? Because people are talking about this in a lot of different ways. Some people are saying, well, President Trump has lost politically. He's driveling this through the courts, and this is the actions of a president that's lost. Other people are saying that this is a big step towards an authoritarian move going around Congress. Uh, what do you see? Uh, I think that those are both fairly apt <laughs> um, uh, assessments of where we are. I also see more happening. I am a historian, um, and so my own work is more on the deep origins of how we got to this point. So one of the roles I play oftentimes in radio and, and, and other kind of broadcast uh, settings is to urge us to pull back the lens a little bit from the immediate and think about how we got to this point. And, for example, if we went back to 2008, just after the election, of President Obama, none of us would have imagined the point we've come to. We've come to this point because of the Koch donor network, I believe, pushing the Republican Party to the breaking point for a political economic agenda that is absolutely unpopular. And in order to get that kind of agenda through the voters and get uh, Republican-based voters to the polls, they have strategically leveraged racism, particularly racism against immigrants, Latino immigrants, particularly Mexican-Americans, people coming over from Mexico and uh, also Muslims to, you know, in terms of voting rights, African-Americans. But I think that what they've done now is essentially created a Frankenstein that they're finding that they, they almost cannot control. You know, the president's actions are being driven by Ann Coulter <laughs> and people like that, you know, on the far r- fringes of our vocabulary. But he is afraid to back down in front of them. And now, you know, Mark Meadows of the Freedom Caucus is saying it would be political suicide for him to sign this compromise bill and not declare a national emergency. So we are at a point of very pitched constitutional crisis in our society, I believe, and social crisis. And it's time for anyone who hasn't been paying attention to start watching closely. Tom, I want to talk about the legal aspects of this, but I thought I would let President Trump did his own legal analysis here. And uh, it was a pretty interesting moment in the press conference. And I want to talk about that. Uh, Here is what President Trump had to say when he was uh, doing his own legal analysis of what a national emergency is going to mean. I'll sign the final papers as soon as I get into the Oval Office and we will have a national emergency and we will then be sued and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling and then we'll get another bad ruling and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court and hopefully we'll get a fair shake and we'll win in the Supreme Court, just like the ban. They sued us in the Ninth Circuit and we lost and then we lost in the appellate division 
And then we went to the Supreme Court and we won. And it was very interesting because yesterday they were talking about the ban. Because we have a ban. It's very helpful. That's President Trump doing some legal analysis of what his national emergency would go through in the courts. Tom, what about it? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was going to say he should keep his day job. But but in fact, you know, his prediction might not be uh, inaccurate. So Oliver Wendell Holmes over 100 years ago said, the law is nothing more than a prediction about what judges will do. And um, And, and he walks through it there and and he says, I'll win in the Supreme Court is his idea. Exactly. And it's um, the language now that there's a, you know, um, uh, uh, a strong conservative majority on the Supreme Court. um, And, you know, a lot of the cases that have come up um, have been very deferential to the president, including um, United States v. Hawaii, Trump v. Hawaii, which he mentioned, uh, which, of course, is the Muslim ban case. Um, And there you found the Supreme Court just saying, well, if the president says it's necessary, we're not going to second guess that. So this Supreme Court is going to be very deferential. But um, the you know, the. It's obviously going to depend on the particular posture of the cases. There's all kinds of legal um, ways that this might – legal challenges that might end up at the Supreme Court. Now, what is – what about when President Trump says, well, there's been lots of national securities before and they have been for much less things than this. We're being virtually invaded. I think I've got a national security here. And and sure enough, if you go and look at all the national security uh, – national emergencies that have been declared, there um, – there's a lot of them. 58. We're currently still under 31 um, that are still in effect. Uh, does he have a point there? Well, um, they have been, of course, of a very different kind. So the root of the problem, actually, uh, is the fact that our Constitution is 220-something years old and doesn't say anything about emergencies, whereas almost any Constitution written today would have a very strict sort of um, set of regulations. Ours is very vague, and so presidents have filled that in, and Congress has filled that in with a statute called the National Emergencies Act of 1976 is the most recent version of that. And it's interesting, um, in under that act, uh, a presidential declaration of emergency is necessary to trigger other statutory provisions found in American law. And um, it's true, there have been, that's actually led to a real increase in the number of declared emergencies. Most of these involve something called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which is the act under which we um, sanction foreign governments that we don't like. And they, they, um, all so of President Obama's were under that. I mean, he had like 10 or so, and they were all about that. Yeah, there's, that's the standard. It's, it's sort of a necessary legal step in order to um, use foreign sanctions, which we do use to, you know, um, varied effect around the world. Um, so um, there's emergencies and then there's emergencies. But the idea of using, uh, invoking an emergency for this particular act is obviously um, fairly unprecedented, and uh, especially given the kind of broad sense that this isn't a real emergency. Um, but that, of course, makes means it's going to be an uh, important legal case. And we're going to see if the courts will actually constrain the president on that point. I'm talking with Tom Ginsburg, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy, and Nancy McLean, author of Democracy in Chains. And we're talking about President Trump and his declaration of a national emergency this morning over the border wall issue. Um, Nancy, I wanted to get your opinion about uh, something Tom was talking about with the with the Supreme Court being the, the last adjudicator here of any uh, eventual challenge. Um, when you take a step back as the historian in the room uh, and you think about what's happening with our Supreme Court, how does that all sit with you? 
it's deeply troubling um, because I have watched and studied the the uh, political right in this country over a long period of time, and uh, watched as they developed a long game, a very strategic long game over decades to transform our society, knowing that they had an unpopular agenda but wanting to figure out a way to push it through. And one way to do that was to reconfigure the judiciary to uh, to promote to actively finance and promote uh, understandings of the Constitution that are at variance with what has been happening over the course of the 20th century, certainly since 1937 in the New Deal, uh, but even before in many cases, and try to get that into law schools, get that into the conversation, and also stock the judiciary with like-thinking people. So Charles Koch himself boasts that he provided the seed money for the Federalist Society, for the Institute for Justice, uh, for many of these other organizations that have worked to change our courts, and now we're faced with a Supreme Court that has, you know, five, uh, a majority of five people who are affiliated with this society for which Charles Koch provided seed money, uh, which ha- and, and the Roberts Court is to the right of 90 percent of Americans, and that includes Republicans, on virtually all the issues. So I think what we're seeing here, and we have to be clear about this because I think many people can get lost in the, you know, in some of the weeds of all this and the complexities of national emergencies, but to my understanding, Trump's uh, declaration is is unprecedented in the sense that it is an end run around democracy, right? He failed through the political process. Congress did not, even his own political party, did not want to do what he wanted it to do. They could not get majority support for that, and that's why he's declaring a national emergency. Not because there's a national emergency, but because he has a political emergency that is of his own creation, you can say, his own previous steps. So this is really, really frightening stuff. I mean, this is a president trying to govern against the majority. Two-thirds of the American people don't believe there's a national emergency that we need to do with this. Less than one-third does. That's why he's declaring this. He couldn't get it through the political process, so he is abusing his power. And I think we need to be really clear-eyed about that. And I think, really, conservatives need to be challenged on this. And libertarians to say, what are you doing? You know, this is at variance with what you've said through all the years. When are you going to say enough and stop this? Because it is, it is their enabling that has brought us to this point, I believe. Um, Tom, I wanted to get your idea on some of this because um, is and people always try to stack Supreme Courts. People, the courts are always political. Um, are, are we seeing something long-term different with uh, the Federalist Society and other uh, movements that have got us to this point where we've got a, a you know a tilted court? Well, that's an interesting question. I do think the courts have become more explicitly politicized in the last uh, generation or two, and um, you know we have seen really the some unprecedented steps like the denial of the hearing to Merrick Garland and such. Um, that have shown that the courts now are just seen as a political branch. I think the idea that we now decide presidential elections based on who's going to get court appointments is a real perversion of democracy, uh, however defined, and um, it's very problematic. But uh, so, so yes, I do think we're at a different place, and it's hard to know if it's stable long term. As Nancy points out, if this, this Supreme Court blesses uh, this particular emergency, and even if they do, by the way, I don't think the wall is ever going to get built. It's all going to take a lot of time and a lot of litigation. But even you know, if they do do that, what does that do for libertarians in this country? Um, you know, to say that basically a president can spend money on his own without um, going through Congress, I don't think 
conservatives in the end are going to be happy with that or should be. I wanted to play another clip from the press conference that really is um, that has to do with facts and what the facts are and whether the president seems to keep repeating things that are not true and does not seem to believe things that are true. And uh, Brian Karam, a reporter for Playboy, uh, confronted him about facts and had this discussion with him. Numbers from your own Border Patrol, numbers from this government show that the amount of uh, illegal immigrants are down. There is not violence on the border. And that there's most no violence on the there's border? not as much violence no, oh, really? as let me, wait a minute, 26 wait a people. Let me finish the killed. question, please. Let me finish the question. Two weeks please. ago, 26 people were killed. I in understand what the border. I understand what you're a saying. mile away from where I went. I under, I was there. I understand. That's not the question. The question is, do we forget about that? No, I'm not forgetting about it. I'm asking you to clarify where you get your numbers, because most of the uh, DEA crimes reporting statistics that we see show that drugs are coming across at the ports of entry, that illegal immigration is down, and the violence is down. Okay. So what do you base okay. your let facts me, let on? Me, come on, let's go. Sort and of, secondly... Sort of, uh, no, no, you get one. Uh, you get well, one. Well, the Ready? second sit down. Is, Wait, sit down. Sit down. Could you, could you please sit answer? Sit down. You get one um, question. S- uh, I please. get my numbers from a lot of sources, like Homeland Security, primarily, and the numbers that I have from Homeland Security are a disaster. And you know what else is a disaster? The numbers that come out of Homeland Security, Kirsten, for the cost that we spend. There's President Trump uh, debating with Brian Karam what a, what a fact is. And, you know, we've been in this place before with President Trump. Uh, Nancy McClain, uh, when you pull back and think about what's going on here, what is going on here? Wow. Well, again, I think this all has deep roots. I mean, I have to say what you just um, uh, the excerpt you just played was really quite breathtaking, that interaction. And I think Americans have to say, if we believe in the First Amendment and the freedom of the press and, you know, the traditional way that we've done things to have open interactions between, you know, media and our elected officials, that was quite a scary exchange there. Um, But I think, you know, I would say maybe maybe one way to think about this, too, is that the party the president comes from has been effectively taken over through the threat of primary challenges from the right and the lure of dark money for compliant elected officials um, by this radical right donor network that is heavily based in the fossil fuel industry. You'll think this is a diversion, but I don't think so. Um, And the reason I'm saying that is look at climate science denial. By 2014, only seven of, uh, or sorry, eight of 278 Republican elected officials in Congress would admit that climate change was man-made, you know, was human-caused. That was a great, radical departure from the 1990s, and it was brought about by this, this again, the threat of being primaried if you don't uh, toe the line, and the lure of dark money if you do. So we have a political party. It's not just Donald Trump is what I'm trying to get across. The Republican Party has turned its back on facts, on science, on empirical evidence in order to please the donors uh, who now drive its politics and the base that has increasingly, it seems like, lost touch with reality, one has to say. Um, And I just don't understand where the other um, sort of, you know, sane, (laughs) moderate Republican voters are or any Republican elected officials, you know, of courage who would speak out against what's happening, because we are on a very, very dangerous path downward if we don't start finding a conscience among um, 
at least a good section of conservatives in elected office, not just the media folks. Well, your comment about uh, the fossil fuel industry is interesting because President Trump's administration seems to have identified uh, the bad guys on the planet as Iran and Venezuela. They're both countries with a lot of oil. President Trump seems to be threatening a lot of things with these countries, but he's a, he also declares himself like a non-interventionist, a guy who doesn't want to go to war needlessly. But these are the countries that he they seem to be threatening war with all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I wish that our, um, uh, with the exclusion of you and some other wonderful people, I think by and large, um, journalists and, and news editors in our country don't seem to have the same historical background or breadth of view that they once had. And so we really don't have enough people asking these questions um, that we need to say, you know, where is Donald Trump kind of, you know, on his own and where is Donald Trump representing something larger? And I think particularly on these international questions, journalists just have not been asking the right questions to yield the information we need. So, for example, the Brexit decision, right, that was initially portrayed as just some, you know, crazy right-wing populist upsurge on the part of the British people, but more and more has been reported, particularly by The Guardian and, and other news sources, that in fact, this is coming from the same kind of network of market fundamentalist organizations in England, particularly the Institute for Economic Affairs, um, that is connected to the ones in the U.S through the Koch network and that, that there's something called the Atlas network. You know, Trump officials were over there trying to stir this up. Now, why is that, we have to ask? And I think that ultimately, you know, if you follow the money and you follow the ideas, what you see is that this kind of donor network is deadly against any kind of action on climate change. And they also don't support the kind the welfare state, you know, like the kind of thing that the European Union holds up or that, you know, our country used to hold up. So they want to get rid of um, uh, occupational health and safety standards, you know, um, social insurance, like social security, uh, minimum wages, all of that. So the bottom line is it's in their interest to break up the European Union. Nancy McLean is professor of history and public policy at Duke University. She's author of Democracy and Change, the Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. Last question for you, Tom Ginsburg. And uh, if you're a betting man, does this national emergencies thing fly through the courts? Um, if I'm a betting man, I would think it is going to be blessed ultimately by the Supreme Court. Um, I think the chance of the wall getting built is very, very low. Um, be, and there's going to be a lot of really interesting cases. And uh, so I look you, forward to wait, watching it. Wait, <laughs> you, you think it'll win in the Supreme Court, but the wall won't get built? Exactly. Because um, there's, uh, you know, so as I say, declaring an emergency, all it does is give you access to a whole bunch of statutes. He's got to justify each one of those. There's going to be tons of cases. And, uh, there's an election in two years. He's got to at least uh, go really fast through the courts to get done by then. Tom Ginsburg is professor of political science and international law at the University of Chicago. He's co-author of the book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Thank you for joining us. Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stelet. He will talk with a German filmmaker who has a film coming uh, opening up at the Music Box Theater. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Film contributor Milos Stalik of Facets interviews the world's great filmmakers on Worldview. This week, he speaks with German filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, whose movie, a debut, The Lives of Others, won the 2006 Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Donnersmark's new movie, Never Look Away, is Germany's official submission for the 2019 Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, and it's opening this week at the Music Box Theater. So, Florian, last time I spoke to you, which is about 10 years ago, you had just made Lives of Others, which went on this incredible journey, right, from what was a school project to winning the Oscar, becoming yeah. the major art film of the year. Then after Lives of Others and yeah. basking in that success, you went to Hollywood. That was not a very happy journey, and now you came back. You know, it was happy enough, uh, but it wasn't a terrible experience. I mean, what was a little terrible about it was that I think um, you and many of your colleagues were deeply upset at me for making <laughs> that film. Uh, but the audience was happy with it. Uh, it made yeah, money. It, it performed well. It, you know, I get many more letters from people telling me how much The Tourist meant to them than I think I'll ever get for The Lives of Others or for Never Look Away. Well, well that tells you something about the state of film. But <laughs> <laughs> So this was still the whole question of Germany and the role of artists was somehow in your heart or in your mind because you kind of yes. went back to that theme. How did that happen? You know, I'd had the kernel of an idea for this story for a very long time, actually, since meeting a journalist in Germany about 10 or 12 years ago or so. And he had asked me about some political topic, but it was soon became clear that I was more interested in interviewing him than he was in interviewing me. And he was a fascinating person. I asked him, what else have you been working on? He told me that he had written a biography of a great German painter, Gerhard Richter, mm-hmm. who'd lived through you know, a lot of the calamities of the 20th century. Yeah, there were a few elements in that biography that really inspired me and gave me an idea for a movie that I kind of carried within me for yeah, a decade before I then decided to sit down and really do something about it. And what interests you in this? Obviously, yeah. the film works on multiple levels. It's a story during World War II, covers 30 years, which is a very long time, covers Nazi Germany, the East, GDR, the West, and the trajectory of this artist. So it's a large-scale film. Mm-hmm. Yes, there were many things that interested me about the story. The kernel of truth in this whole film, or of actual fact, is that Gerhard Richter, he, I hadn't known that much about him as a painter, but I knew one beautiful painting that he'd made of his beautiful young aunt, his mother's youngest sister, holding him as a little baby. And it was known that this woman had, shortly after this picture was taken, she had been murdered by the Nazis because she developed schizophrenia. And the Nazis didn't want any of those genes around and preventing the master race from having no physical or mental problems whatsoever. And so they tried to murder everybody who had these, what they thought were hereditary disabilities. And I was always fascinated by that painting because it gave a face to the victims of yet another crime that the Nazis committed. It was also really interesting to me that, you know, by making this beautiful painting, he somehow dealt with his own trauma of losing this aunt. I liked that part. You know, it was kind of a painting for me also about how we can use whatever terrible things we experience in life and turn it into something good. You know, in the case of artists like this film, they can turn it into art, but, you know, I think we can use it in all of our lives. And what this journalist uncovered when Richter was already in his 70s 
was that the father of the woman that Gerhard Richter ended up marrying, and he made many paintings of both his father and of his wife, of course, and of the child that he had had with his wife, that the father of the woman that he ended up marrying was a high-ranking SS doctor and partly responsible for this euthanasia program, this eugenics program that the Nazis had in the Dresden region there also. And I really found that very interesting because it showed how after 1945 in Germany, you had the victims and the murderers living in such close proximity, having to rebuild the country and together in some crazy way. And, you know, what would that do to the intuition of a young artist who has to just trust his feeling about things, that he's living under the same roof as the man who created the very trauma for him that might have propelled him into becoming an artist? There was just so much in that initial idea, that element from this painter's life, that I knew it would be interesting enough to make you know, a film that would be compelling and also just interesting enough to keep me occupied and happy during the years that it takes to make it. You know, that's one of the things about filmmaking that people never really think about, and maybe filmmakers don't think about enough also, is you know, I've now spent four years of my life on this film. This has to be something that is of immense interest to me. Otherwise, you know, it'll, it'll be like running out of steam, like running out of fuel in the middle of a highway. That happened to me once, by the way. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty terrifying thing, you know, that you have to have enough to sustain you. And I just knew there was enough in there. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Stelic, speaking with filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, whose new film, Never Look Away, is nominated for Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Picture. You said someplace two things. One is that every great work of art to you has some biographical element, which you just mm-hmm. talked about, Richter. But Richter was kind of a reclusive person who was not open about his biography. So your first task really was kind of becoming his therapist. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know about therapist, but I had to somehow try and get some specific elements for the film out of him. You know, I mean, I think maybe... One of the reasons that he was so open about telling me these things was, yes, you know, I mean, it's always interesting to try and explore your life with someone who looks at it objectively and, you know, might have some interest in finding out the truth. You know, the main thing was that he knew that I wouldn't be making a biopic where everything that was there was going to be exactly his life, but I just wanted to use some specific elements to, in a way, make my fiction more real. You know, I don't know, he found that interesting because I think it also mirrors the way that he approaches his paintings. But unfortunately, I could never get him to see the film because I, as I read him the script when I was completely done with it, just so he wouldn't be surprised by anything that was in there. And I think that was already quite emotional for him. And so when I was done with the film, I said, oh, look, I'd like to show it to you before we show it to the world. And he said, I don't feel up to it. I can't see it. And I was a little sad about that. But on the other hand, I understand it because if he feels that it's too close to reality, it would probably be very painful to relive those experiences. If he feels, you know, there's too much fiction in it for his taste, that would probably be also be painful to watch because you feel, no, no, wait, it wasn't exactly like that. So maybe the film is for everybody except for him. (laughs) (laughs) So the first half of the film covers the main character, whose name is Kurt, uh, life in the GDR, first of all, growing up under the Nazis with his aunt, seeing his aunt go away, then becoming an artist, being mentored and tutored in the socialist realism or social realism, which is always no I, no I, nothing personal, everything about society. Mm-hmm. He becomes a relatively successful painter of murals. 
then he moves to West Germany. And I think that's an interesting part because the film suddenly kind of shifts tone because it really becomes something else, a, mm-hmm. really, really a journey about this artist finding his voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. You know, um, you know, I have a lot of family members who are from the East. My father was born in Silesia, which is now Poland, and my mother was from the East. who was from Magdeburg, and we still had family members who stayed there and a lot of friends, and even as a child, I observed people uh, somehow finding the courage in them to flee to the West, and it was often at first very difficult for people because you're so used to a system telling you what to do, what to think, what to feel, that in a way this freedom and the responsibility that comes with it can also be quite scary. And so I thought an interesting way to show that would be through art, where you have this artist, first the Nazis have a very specific idea of what they want art to be like, and then the Nazis are defeated and he comes into the communist system and the communists have a very specific idea about what kind of art he should be making. And then he feels that this is all wrong and he flees to the West, but suddenly it's kind of lighter because he theoretically has all the freedom that he wants, but he's so used to looking for a system that he first thinks, okay, what's cool right now? Or what does the market say? And only once that he overcomes that kind of very powerful system also, and really starts to look inside, look within, accept himself as an individual that matters, only then is he able to really become the great artist that he always potentially was. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milos Telic, speaking with filmmaker Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, whose new film is called Never Look Away. Going back to this biography, so you were, obviously, this East Germany, West Germany, you were a teenager when the wall fell. Mm-hmm. What in this film is biographical for you, about you? Well, I mean, this is truly more a look into other people's biography. Maybe one after... Okay, but that's a cop-out. That's a (laughs) cop-out on your own statement. (laughs) Okay, how about this then? Maybe you'll also find that a cop-out. You know, what's certainly biographical is that I've always been very, very passionately interested in times that I have not experienced. It was always so strange to me to think that parents and grandparents and so on had lived through times that I could not understand. And so I really spent every second of my free time trying to understand those periods in history. And I remember once I even got into real trouble at home because I came back from school many hours late and my parents already thought that I'd been kidnapped or murdered or run over or something. But in my school bus, there were two old ladies who were talking about their childhood between the wars. And I was just eavesdropping on their conversation. And I found it so fascinating that when my stop came, I just stayed in there. And unfortunately, they went right through to the terminal. And I just knew this was an incredibly rare opportunity for me as a child to look into (laughs) the lives of others, if you will, you know, and get a sense of that. But okay, if you want something more directly autobiographical, I think Everybody goes through those phases. Your parents raise you a certain way. You know, the system in which you grow up, your school, your government, and so on, raises you a certain way. Maybe in some cases it's more extreme, such as people who grew up under dictatorships or authoritarian regimes or very, very authoritarian parents and, you know, super strict traditional schools or something like that. You know, it comes in various gradations, but then we, at some point, have to. It's our spiritual obligation, we have to shrug the things that shaped us. Hopefully they were well-intentioned, but still, it's still wrong for us. And then we have to say, okay, look, this is what all these people wanted me to be, to function within society or so, but 
that's not what I am. Who am I really? And it's a real journey of self-discovery. You know, I, of course, I went through that, as I think um, everybody does. You know, and I don't know, maybe there is also the variant of the person who says, well, you know what, I actually happen to be or I really want to be exactly what my parents and the system and society wanted me to be. And we all know people who feel like they've come to that conclusion <laughs> for themselves. But I think it's quite a rare thing. One of the things that has brought me to America is I think this is a country built on that principle of self-discovery and the individual's pursuit of happiness, as it says in the Constitution. And that's certainly been, you know, my life's ambition. What's well, a noble dream, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. Agnieszka Holland uh, recently gave a lecture in Rotterdam about, the, I think, the freedom of speech or whatever, in which mm -hmm. she talked partially about what she thinks is that a lot has changed in film that there are now very, very good films being made for which there are no audiences and that a lot of the audiences have migrated towards this large-scale superhero, uh, you know, very commercial, global product. Where do you stand on this? You know, I mean, I'm not a cultural pessimist, you know. I really think that in a certain way, you know, if you take the whole group of people, I don't think there can be... Uh, really fundamental changes one way or the other. I think the sum total of good and evil and cultural and not cultural and so on, I think remains the same. It's not that suddenly, you know, someone pours an ingredient of depravity or stupidity into the mass that is uh, human existence and it just all changes for the worse. So, you know, I think that we always have to look when something good disappears. And yes, you know, high level, sophisticated cinema is becoming unbelievably hard to make, to finance, distribute. And even if we do manage to make it because some old systems are still there, <laughs> it's even harder to find an audience for it. But what we have to see is not, okay, well, it's all gone and the world is going to pieces, but we have to see where has it migrated? Where do people now go to seek their spiritual, cultural fulfillment? You know, if I look at some of the television shows that are out there right now, I don't remember in my childhood there being a beautifully produced, interesting show like the first several seasons of, for example, House of Cards or the entirety of Breaking Bad. You know, I see those films and I, I mean, you know, I think of them even as films. I see those shows and I think, oh, this is really interesting. Maybe a certain type of sophisticated storytelling is just moving there. And yes, it's not the big screen. And many things are lost if they're not taking place on the big screen. But many other things are won because you just have so much time. And I think that, you know, Agnieszka has also migrated towards that. She actually is responsible for several of the really interesting episodes mm -hmm. of, of House of Cards. Right. And she's now originated a very interesting television series with The First, which was also created by Bo Willimon, the creator of House of Cards. And, you know, she has always seen that a lot of that is happening there. Cinema is in an extremely precarious place. It just is. But, you know, in a certain way, there's even something positive about that. Because I'll tell you what I've noticed. Touring with film and just getting such incredibly strong and emotional reactions from people. You know, yes, of course, the audience for what is commonly called art house cinema has shrunk massively over the past 10 years. It just has. I mean, you can see it in all the numbers. You can see it in the bankruptcies of the companies distributing these types of films. But the people who still go to this are the true believers. It's almost like I go to a screening of this film and I want to be friends with everybody who's in the audience because... These are the people who really went because they find spiritual fulfillment in something that tries to go deep and that tries to explore truth and art and humanity and all that. 
And you don't have the snobs who go to the opera because it's good to be seen there. You know, those people are all gone because our society has changed so much that there is no advantage anymore to being seen as a representative of high culture. You know, those times are gone. Now it's good to be seen as someone who's a representative of, you know, reality TV shows. And so the structure in society has shifted so much. The richest people are not the people who are, I don't know, developing great agricultural products or something like that, or maybe the great professors or writers or something like that. They're people who invent an app that will delete your erotic photographs after 10 seconds, you know? <laughs> well, we definitely want the genuine. The film is called Never Look Away. The director is Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. It's the nominee for Academy Awards Best Foreign Language Picture. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Milos. And Never Look Away opens today at the Music Box Theater. You can see it there. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where you let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we will travel to Belarus and hear about a play from Belarus. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our weekend passport segment where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekends. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi from the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange, drops by with some suggestions for your international weekend. Nice to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Where are we going first? Well, we're ultimately going to the Belarus and the Belarusian uh, theater scene. But uh, before that, there is a couple of things that I want to mention that are really interesting of note. One is that make sure it's only about a week or so of uh, this uh, available, uh, this program available in Chicago. The Joffrey Ballet uh, presents Anna Karenina. This is an experiment by the Joffrey risk-taking with Australian, collaboration with the Australian uh, uh, ballet also. And they have turned this Russian novel into a ballet, a dance. And I went there with a lot of suspicion as to how this will all work. And I was absolutely smitten. It is really, really good. And it's only around for a couple of weeks. I hope we get a chance to bring him in at some point to talk about the creative process. But they have done a fantastic job with the visual elements of all of this and the dance numbers and going through the novel and also capturing the spirit of the peasants and revolution and the Russian aristocracy. All of that is in there. And I'll tell you, the train scene with Anna Karenina ultimately committing suicide, spoiler alert, is just <laughs> breathtaking in this play. In this uh, ballet. Well, I call that a rave, Nari. That's Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. The Joffrey Ballet presents Anna Karenina. It is running through February 24th at the Auditorium Theater. Gorgeous, sitting in it just all by itself. Absolutely. And then another thing that's really a favorite of mine in Chicago is back in Chicago, the Flamenco Festival. This is the 17th annual version of the Chicago Flamenco Festival. It's starting off tonight uh, at the the Instituto Cervantes. 
Ideas, the Spanish Cultural Institute uh, on uh, on Ohio Street, Ohio and Dearborn. And there tonight there is a, there is actually a guitarist from Spain. She's kind of been uh, Antonia Antonia Jimenez, I think is her name, and she is kind of like a, this sort of a feminization of flamenco kind of movement. Uh, she's been doing a lot of all girl bands uh, arrangements in Spain. She's here uh, tonight performing for the opening, and then tomorrow there is a really a uh, rock'em sock'em sort of a spirited Andalusian dancer called Jesus Ortega, who's going, who's not to be missed. I've not seen him perform live yet, but I've watched the videos, and the videos are really amazing. That's the 17th annual Chicago Flamingo Fest. Uh, it starts this weekend, runs through March 14th, so there are lots of opportunities and oh. lots of artists coming, and they're top-flight flamingo exactly. artists. Exactly. I'm just telling you about the next couple of days. There will be tons of other uh, opportunities to see some really great artists. All right, and now we go on to our feature element today, and we're going to, as we've mentioned, Belarus. Yes, uh, Tuta Theater Company is presenting an interesting uh, play by called Radio Culture. By the I Bil- like the name Radio Culture. Exactly, right, the bat, right off. The well, bat. actually, wait until you figure out what it really means <laughs> <laughs> in the Belarusian context, uh, and uh, it's uh, by by the Rus- by the Belarusian writer Maxim Dosko, and uh, the, this uh, theater company, Tuta Theater Company, specializes also on Eastern European theater. Uh, and I'll let them tell you what radio culture really means in their context. Amber Robinson is here. She's director of Radio Culture. She also co-translated the play into English. Great to meet you, Amber. Hi, good to be here. And Kevin V. Smith is here. He plays Volodya, the main character and the only speaking role in radio culture. Great to meet you, Kevin. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, tell us, first of all, a little about the theater company and the work you've been doing uh, on European theater for so sure. long. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think really the best way to explain Tuta Theater Company uh, is really summed up by the explanation of the name Tuta. Uh, there are two explanations. Both of them are true. One is official. One is unofficial. Uh, the official meaning is that it is an acronym for the Utopian Theater Asylum. Because uh, it nice. was, yeah, very lofty sounding. Um, but it was founded by a uh, couple from the from former Yugoslavia who were asylum seekers during the 90s and came to the United States uh, to find a new world to build their own theater utopia. So that's where that name comes from. Uh, the unofficial but also true meaning is that it means chamber pot in Serbian. So between those two poles, a very uh, lofty and uh, not taking yourself too seriously is Tuda. That's great. Yeah. I, I think that's where we all really live, right? <laughs> somewhere between those two poles. Um, <laughs> now, uh, the, explain where radio culture comes from. It comes from... Uh, the Belarus Free Theater Company. Uh, to, who wants to take that? Kevin, you want to take that? Um, sure, yeah. So uh, Radio Culture is a, a play by Belarusian playwright Maxim Dosko, and it was written in 2013 and originally staged by Belarus Free Theater in 2014. And Amber actually discovered this play um, when she was reading a collection of plays translated into English Mm-hmm. Plays that had won awards at the Belarus Free Theater 
um, yeah. festival. Yeah, I, I first got interested in, uh, well, I've had a lifelong love affair with Slavic theater, and I first became aware of the Belarus Free Theater when they came and performed King Lear at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater a few years ago, uh, and I became familiar with their truly heroic story of being this illegal uh, group of artists um, who are performing in exile now. Uh, So I I found a collection of plays that they had published, um, and I said, I've got to read all these plays, and um, Radio Culture was was one of the plays in that collection, and it was very interesting, and I thought, there's something here we need to explore. Yeah. Uh, Just to contextualize things, uh, uh, Belarus is considered to be the last uh, dictatorship in Europe, and it's a place where still things are in the supposedly at a time warp uh, where from the Soviet era. Things have not progressed very much mm. since then, and uh, but it also seems to have a very vibrant theater community at the same time, and a lot of attempt at subversion through <laughs> art and theater, which is uh, very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. It's very dangerous. Uh, so, so uh, tell. Uh, your uh, your play your character Kevin uh, is going through sort of a one day in his life. That's right. Thinking out loud and just describing uh, issues of being in between. I would say that the liminality of being in this in between worlds. Uh, tell us a little bit about how it how you what approach you took to do this character. Well, the the character really spoke to me. So it, I feel that the, the I mean the the character he's his name is Valodya. He's a thirty one year old um, Belarusian who works as a foreman for a construction company in right. Minsk. And at the beginning of the play, he states that he started listening to Radio Culture, which is a Belarusian uh, radio program uh, that focuses on the arts. It's a state run program. But according to him, he just stumbled on this program and then something changed inside of him. But he can't quite express what it is. He doesn't really have the words to say what it is. He just knows that something is happening inside of him, maybe. Um, And so then you watch him go through his day where he details all of his work at the construction company, his relationships with his employees, or he's surrounded by endemic alcoholism. Um, and his feeling of isolation and, and this kind of being in between. And, but the thing that, that really spoke to me is that he, this idea of normalcy, which he's, he wants so much to be normal. Um, and he feels that whatever is happening, happening inside of him because of his interaction with this cultural radio has exposed something that maybe isn't normal and he doesn't really know what that is and um, that's very disturbing for him but also possibly an opportunity for self-actualization or for um, you know finding something deeper something more meaningful and finding out maybe who he really is yeah and radio uh, is state controlled in Belarus so radio culture kind of insinuates at uh, basically the state trying to acculture you that's right. And uh, that's also a part of all of that. So, Which is, yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating that it's this program that has instigated this change inside of him. Um, and I think Maxim Dosko has done a, an amazing job of positioning this radio uh, program dramaturgically because this is a cultural program that any person could listen to. And right. it really situates Valodya as this everyman. It's not some kind of like... Um, experimental artistic 
venture. It's very much a state-run yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, it it is very complex in that way. It's not about some sort of um, putting this sort of rarefied arts appreciation on a pedestal and saying that if you can reach that level, you will become transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is more sort of complex and mysterious than that about just a simple like opening of somebody uh, who didn't understand maybe how to be open to difference before. We have a clip. And can mm-hmm. you set it up a little bit, Kevin? Because the, the play takes place in the third person. That's and, right. Uh, and you're, you're kind of telling a story here. That's right. Yeah. So another really fascinating thing about the text is that it's, like you said, written in the third person. And as Valodia narrates everything that happens in his day, or as I do in his day, um, he tells little stories. And one of them that we're about to hear is a story that he heard from a co-worker, a fellow foreman named Jora, who tells the story of uh, what happened to him the night before when he went out to buy some things at the store. Last night, he was walking out of a shop. He went there to pick up a few things and some beer. It was already late, sometime after nine. So, he was walking, and suddenly he noticed something dark in the grass at the end of the block, number 46. He lives in 44. So he took a closer look. There's a man over there. Well, he's probably drunk as usual. So he kept walking. Then he stopped slightly farther away. He was standing there smoking. People kept walking by. It's not a quiet street. Most people notice that pile on the ground and keep walking. A guy with a dog, a small one, hairy, York's, well, this terrier. The dog rushes up, yelps, it's high-pitched yapping, you know, and the owner only stop, 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 pulls it by the leash, and they hightailed it out of there. Well, it's a nightmare. No one even approached to take a closer look. Can you imagine such people? If you have a heart attack, so no one will help, and you kick the bucket. So then, three cops walk by, you know those rookies who patrol the neighborhood? I told them they brought him to his senses and dragged him somewhere. Well, look at people these days. Nobody gives a damn. Kevin V. Smith as Volodya in the play Radio Culture, and Radio Culture is at the Tuta Theater Company through March 3rd, and that's at 4670 North Manor Avenue. It's a real little place, I hear. How many seats in the place? 21. So you create an intense theater experience for people when they go. Yes, that's true. It's very intimate. That sounds terrific, and it's gotten great reviews, and I'm uh, glad that we could feature it here. Uh, Radio Culture, uh, check it out at the Tuta Theater Company. Nari Safavi, thanks for another fine weekend passport. It was a privilege to be here. Monday on Worldview, we are going to talk with the executive director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and we'll have a conversation with him about uh, something that is in his ballywick, uh, hostage negotiation. He's written a new book about how other countries approach hostage negotiation and how we approach hostage negotiation, and we'll talk about that Monday on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida and Char Dastin. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.